All the Lonely People. Written and produced by me, Jason Nelson. Chapter 6 The next morning it all feels like a dream, but it's not something I can dismiss. My mind is distracted, running through those brief moments. Part of me expects Eleanor to say something during breakfast. I quiz her on her dreams, but there's nothing that jumps out. She says she had a bad dream about someone taking her pink purse, but that's nothing out of the ordinary for her. As I wander, distracted through the menial breakfast cleanup chores, Eleanor interrupts me for a game of hide-and-seek. I oblige, covering my eyes as she hides, quite obviously in very visible places. Once she's in middle school, she's going to start hearing stories about how her parents were too soft, and created within her an attitude of entitlement and constant positive reinforcement, and it's true, especially with this game. I tiptoe through the house, pondering loudly, Where's Eleanor? Is she hiding in the curtains? She's not. She's underneath the kitchen table. Is she hiding upstairs? I sit on the steps, pulling out my phone, quickly scanning through emails of hamburger coupons and ebook discounts as I do my best impression of someone stomping around upstairs. Where could she be? I say, exasperated, and she pops out with a, Here I am. Then we start over. With hands covering my eyes, I count. I hear the familiar thumping as she uses her hands and feet to clamber up the stairs. When I reach 20, I uncover my eyes and begin the search. I spend some time searching the main floor as I browse a news site for updates on the horribleness of the world. Heading to the stairs, I hear a giggle behind me. Looking around our playroom, I see feet sticking out from underneath an armchair. I spend some time looking in our coat closet and behind some curtains before asking, Are you behind this chair? She squeals as she's found and I laugh. Squealing, Eleanor pushes out from behind the chair, running off towards the kitchen. Mama, she shouts. Follow Eleanor towards the kitchen. She runs out our sliding glass door and onto our porch. She's looking down into the yard, but before I can see what has captured her attention, I hear, Daddy, I'm upstairs. I look towards the stairs, but when I look back, the Eleanor on the porch is gone. Besides experiencing the death of a loved one, there isn't anything else more mentally shattering than seeing something or someone where it doesn't belong. I've had experiences in the past where I've opened the front entry door on a dark night and have seen myself reflected in the glass of the storm door. When it happened, it didn't immediately register that I was there. My heart jumps, thinking that someone is standing outside my house, but then, within a matter of milliseconds, my brain catches up and logic provides the answer. In this circumstance, there isn't a readily available explanation. Last night, I justified the vision as stress-related and due to a lack of sleep. Today was different, though. 
it reminded me of the lost time at the park after the funeral. It's not something that is easily explainable as a ghost, either. Sure, if I was seeing Veronica by herself, it would make sense if you believed that sort of thing. But why would I also see a very much alive Eleanor? Turn around as I hear footsteps coming down the stairs. It's Eleanor, arms folded, looking very cross with me. I don't want to play this game anymore, she says, huffing into the playroom and picking up a doll to play with. Where I went to college was considered one of the most haunted towns in America. Freshman year, there were girls telling stories of ghost babies crying in their closets or shut down elevator shafts. When a new dormitory was opened in a refurbished building that had been closed decades ago, stories surfaced of people who had hung themselves in the bell tower. Footsteps in nearby empty rooms, and most creepily, one friend hearing voices whispering a few inches above his head at night. As haunted as the town was, I never experienced anything that would have been labeled as supernatural. Growing up in a religious household, there was a certain belief prescribed to ghosts, which led me into the belief that anyone experiencing a ghostly presence was being affected by an evil spirit. The foundation of religion made it easy to explain the uncertainty around death, providing a sense of hope that death isn't the end. By following a clear set of guidelines, religious followers can obtain entry into the afterlife or be reincarnated or get their own planet. It makes the unknown of death easily more bearable. Which would you prefer, a grandiose vision of the afterlife as you breathe your last, or nothing? As man evolved, religion emerged to provide context to the human experience. Lightning was attributed to the god of thunder. The sun rose and set because of the sun god. Food grew and was harvested because of the harvest god and so on and so forth until someone thought that all of the gods and rules were too complicated and founded a monotheistic religion. Gods became the god of the gaps. Gaps in our knowledge. The stories changed, but all those things were attributed to one god, one capital G god. Bands and tribes formed, and as they split and took those stories with them, the idea of organized religion began to form, and with it came the development of their moral code, the do's and don'ts and the punishments ascribed to each. They didn't know that killing was wrong, it was just something you did. As man continued to evolve, science and philosophy started to come into play. Often I theorized about the story of the Tower of Babel and whether it was the first historical technological expansion, and if through that rush towards knowledge, that was when the idea and fear of God was introduced. Fear of what could be explained and the possibility of unlimited knowledge tore the tower down, destroying what could have been a golden age of advancement and replaced it with a dark age of hindered thought, morality, and philosophy. After Babel, for a millennia, religion continued to evolve, becoming easily more digestible. Regardless of the religion, it basically boils down to, do this and you're good, but do that and you're bad. It's a lesson in cause and effect. Good people get the afterlife, bad people don't. 
The biggest fault in all this, regardless of the stories about the little G-God or big G-God coming down to earth to provide their wisdom and insight, is that religion was formed by man which is prone to all sorts of corruption. When Judaism and Christianity were founded, there were all sorts of mass persecutions from the main religious sects at that time. Everyone thought they were right and were willing to die or to kill for their belief. Even within those two religious groups, there was plenty of persecution. The Spanish Inquisition, the various witch trials, slavery, the purging of Native Americans, not to mention that the role of women in those religions was non-existent, and the leaders did everything they could to keep women from having a voice for centuries. The way we interacted as a species, for better or worse, mostly worse, stems from the influence of religious dogma and practice. I think of the recent examples of the Rajneesh Purim or the Branch Davidians, groups that were labeled as cults, mostly by white Christians. Are we just as bad? Have we snuffed out the next religious evolution due to our fear and prejudices? Who is the better person? The Christian who gives the homeless man a care package because the Bible tells us to listen to the cries of the poor? Or the atheist because it's the right thing to do? What I said the day of the funeral still rang true, but I still didn't know where that left me and what religious or non-religious label I wore. Could one be an agnostic Catholic? Could I be willing to admit that I don't know what is true? and that there is a high likelihood that everything I ever believed was wrong. All I know is that if my daughter asked me if mommy is in heaven, I would answer yes without hesitating. Several hours later, I find myself alone downstairs. The journal is put away, the television is off, my smartphone is on the counter plugged in. I'm free from distractions so that I can observe... The house is quiet. I can hear traffic in the distance. The sound of airplanes overhead. Then footsteps. It's in my daughter's bedroom. Rising from the couch, I head towards the stairs when I hear the footsteps moving. Now I can tell they are visibly louder and heavier than my daughter's. They come out of the room and begin walking down the stairs at a familiar pace. Whatever it is, it paces around the kitchen, going to the cabinet that holds the glasses, then to the sink. Pauses for a moment before heading towards me. Nothing is visible, only the sound. There's no disturbance in the air, nor in the room. The footsteps end as they come closer to me. Not as a fade, but as if they were slowing down and stopping right in front of me. Looking at my hands, I can see they are shaking. Veronica, I ask, this empty space. I reach out, my hand shaking so badly that vibrating would be a better descriptor. Nothing. I'm about to pull my hand back, but then she's there, my hand immediately tangled in her hair. I can feel it, every strand. My fingers reach, touching the back of her neck. She leans her head into it, and I can feel the warmth of her skin on my wrist, 
the exhale of her breath on the hairs of my arm. I thought you were in bed, Veronica says. She moves in closer, pulling me into an embrace. Inhaling deeply, she murmurs, You smell good. I can feel myself tense and so can she. Are you okay, she asks. Clearing my throat, I say, yeah, sure. You just surprised me. I'm glad you didn't go to bed, she says. You know how I haven't been feeling awesome? My mind goes back in time to two years ago when the diagnosis came in. It was low energy and pain in the abdomen that led to the test which led to the diagnosis. Veronica sees the worry etched on my face and reaches up, cupping my cheek like a child's and saying, Hey, it's alright. I'm pregnant. We're having another baby. I'm back to where I was. At the foot of the stairs. Alone. All the Lonely People is written and produced by me, Jason Nelson. Original soundtrack and composition by Tone of Just Tone Music. Sound editing by Brian Kaler. This show is made possible and ad-free through your contributions. You can support us at patreon.com slash allthelonelypeople. You can also purchase our ebook on amazon.com, as well as our soundtrack through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite player. Spread the word about this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for All the Lonely People Podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Tune in next week for another chapter. And remember, don't be lonely.